I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning. And if you do, please turn into, in them to Matthew chapter 12. And that is on page 816 of the Bibles that you'll find in the backs of the chairs. If one of those Bibles would serve you to keep and take with you, please do that or give it away. Whatever good use it could be put to, we would love for that to happen. Matthew 12, page 816 in the Bibles in the chairs. As I studied for this week's excursus into Matthew's Gospel in our series on the unexpected kingdom of Christ, I came to a realization that I had a bit of a challenge before me because I believe that the next several passages of which Paul just read for us are best understood together. But I also see the need to settle in to each of them. I don't want to just skim these 21 verses, but I also don't want to miss the forest for the trees. And on top of that, in God's providence, the next several weeks of our corporate worship gatherings are going to be a little bit unique. Next week, Brian is preaching to us, and it's going to be uh, a little more Lenten-themed, looking towards the coming weeks where we remember the, the death and resurrection of Christ. And then Palm Sundays after that, I'm going to look at a different passage then. Resurrection Sundays after that, I'm going to look at a different passage then. And then, in fact, even after that, two weeks later, we're going to have one of our mission partners with us who's going to give us an update and preach to us that day. And so as I examined the text before me and the calendar coming up as well, I sensed the Lord leading me to starting this passage today by kind of introducing these first few passages by looking at them with a kind of a bird's eye view. And then, after Resurrection Sunday, go into them one at a time. And actually, I think it's going to work out really well for us. I'm grateful for God's providence. One unimportant reason is that splitting it up this way is actually going to help us finish chapter 12 in May, and then we'll take our summer in Psalms break throughout the summer, and then jump into chapter 13 and into the parables of our Lord starting in the fall once the summer in Psalms is done. But more importantly than that, the providence of God is is leading us to these, these next few weeks lining up this way, I think in part because the last few weeks have given to us multiple opportunities to consider the grace of Christ. His graciousness, His gentleness, His mercy, His love. And over these last few weeks, looking at these passages in Matthew 10 and 11 in particular, we have had to acknowledge that we are often tempted to be unlike Jesus in the ways that we've seen Him lately. We're often tempted to be judgmental, critical towards others, or to use a word that we'll get into a little bit more today, legalistic, and to view our relationship with Christ unbiblically and our relationship to others in a similar way. And we saw, therefore, that we need to be reminded constantly of the gospel grace and love of Jesus. On the 26th of February, we looked at Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30, and I asked us to imagine what Redeemer Bible Church would look like if we mirrored the gracious and gentle heart of Jesus displayed in that passage. The week after that, Andy Nacelli was with us for our Doxa conference, and he guided us through an exposition of Romans 14 and part of Romans 15 as well regarding our consciences and the need for grace in how we even um, educate our own consciences and then influence others' consciences, how judgment towards each other in disputable matters is sin, 
And to assume the best of our brothers and sisters is right and to communicate carefully and gently instead of harshly and angrily is the way to go. And then last week, we took a closer look at how the gracious and gentle heart of Jesus affects us in His words in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 And we parked together on three ways that Christ's gentle grace affects us in our relationship with Him, in our motivation as we live on mission, and in the way that we treat one another in the church. And so I think it should be plain to us gathered at Redeemer Bible Church right now that the Lord deliberately has us considering a matter that is vitally important for us as individuals and as a local church. The importance of grace and mercy and love in contrast to judgment and criticism. That's what's at the heart of Matthew 12, 1 through 21. You heard Paul read it just a few minutes ago. And I wonder if as you listened to Paul now really technically, formally, fully an elder, so with all that much more weight to it. If you wondered if this passage should then teach us something regarding whether or not kids should play sports on Sundays because of this whole Sabbath thing, or whether or not someone should take an overtime shift in a slot where corporate worship is taking place. And you know, while I think there are some principles about those things that this passage does call us to consider It's not really what the passage is ultimately about. And perhaps some of those implications are worth discussing in a fellowship group context or one-on-one with brothers and sisters in Christ. But what's at the heart of this passage is something far deeper and far more meaningful than whether or not Jesus' people are allowed or not to do something. In fact, something being allowed or not is the subject that the Pharisees in this passage were interested in and that Jesus corrected and clarified. Twice in the words that Paul just read for us in verses 1 through 21, we see Jesus questioned about whether or not something that he's involved with is lawful. Jesus, the fulfillment of the law, the originator of the law, the one that the law was pointing to is being questioned by self-righteous and ignorant Pharisees who didn't like him because what he was doing confronted them in their self-righteousness, in their gracelessness, and in their, indeed, power-hungry ways. Three times in this first section, verses 1 through 8, Jesus says something along the lines of, Have you not read your Bible? And that's actually really significant here because that would have been rather insulting to Pharisees. Men who quite literally prided themselves on knowing the Word. Men who had memorized large portions of the Old Testament, dedicated their lives to knowing it and teaching it, and frankly probably knew it better than the vast majority of all the other Jews. But the reason that Jesus says have you not read, was because the Pharisees were demonstrating that even though they certainly had read it, their lack of understanding would call into question whether or not they really saw what they were reading. They evidently didn't understand the grace and mercy that the Word of God has always been filled with. They evidently didn't understand that the whole Scripture that they supposedly knew so well 
pointed to Jesus. Pointed to the Gospel. And that Jesus was indeed the fulfillment of every one of these laws that they so much cared about. And then, of course, multiple times in this whole section, we also see Jesus describing and even expressing and described by His grace. In, in this first section, in the very first verse of this section, Jesus leading His disciples in a way that they were allowed to glean some grain and eat it on the Sabbath because they were hungry. In verse 13, He's healing a man's hand. And then in verse 15, as He'd already done, He's healing many. And then in verses 18 through 21, we get this beautiful description of Jesus from Isaiah that Matthew is once again, as he did often at the beginning of his gospel, he's connecting the dots for his readers who knew their Old Testaments regarding Jesus being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And as we'll see further when we get to that passage and look a little more deeply, the passage Matthew is referring to is Isaiah, what we know now as Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 4. And Matthew is identifying Jesus as the promised servant of God who would come to save, to graciously, mercifully save His people. And that passage that Matthew highlights for us from Isaiah 42 describes Jesus as both mighty and meek. Mighty in justice to the wicked, meek and gentle to His children. And so all of this is in the context of a string of passages. Chapter 12 is in the context of a string of passages that came before it where Jesus' teaching was quite confrontational to his original hearers and to us today. You will perhaps recall that when we were in chapter 11, verse 6, we saw Jesus say, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, and this was directed towards those who were having difficulty trusting Him when things were hard. When things weren't going the way they expected. In verse 16 of that same chapter, Jesus described the people of this generation like children sitting in the marketplaces calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Calling them essentially like spoiled children. And then in verses 21-24, through 24, Jesus gives these woes to unrepentant cities. And it's in that context at the end of chapter 11 that we saw Jesus calling undeserving sinners of that sort to rest in Him and receive His grace. And right after that, we come to chapter 12. Now remember, chapter divisions and verse numbers were added hundreds of years later in Christian Bibles to make it a little bit easier for people like you and me to navigate the Scriptures and be on the same page, quite literally, as we're studying them a little more systematically. And as is the case sometimes with other passages as well, here we've got a chapter division that we need to be a little bit careful with because when we come to a new chapter division, we may be tempted to think, okay, that other stuff is done now, here's... A new beginning. That last chapter is done. But in reality, chapter 12, verses 1 through 21 comes right after Jesus' promise of rest at the end of chapter 11 and what is at the heart of the topic of the first 12 verses of chapter 12 the Sabbath, which is the day of rest. 
Now, when we come back to this passage in a few weeks and dig a little more deeply, we'll take a look at some of the Old Testament context. But in this just bird's eye overview, we've got to see that there's no coincidence that the next topic that Matthew is addressing in, the, in his historical account of the life and ministry of Jesus is the Sabbath and rest. You know, if you enjoy good books, good films, good plays, a good writer will demonstrate his or her skill in part through the fleshing out of characters and plot lines and what we call character development or plot development. In fact, those of us who are a little bit snobby along those lines get annoyed when there is not sufficient character development. In other words, a writer is making sure that the story's plot points and the character's traits are being identified, sometimes hinted at, and sometimes very clearly identified multiple times for the sake of the development of the story and its characters for the reader. That way, the reader really gets the idea what it is that they're reading and what the whole point of the story is. And that can certainly be true in both fiction and in a case like we have before us, which is nonfiction. And I wonder if that's part of what Matthew is doing when we turn, turn to chapter 12. I wonder if Matthew is deliberately pointing our attention to some evidence of what we've just been seeing, what Matthew has just been communicating about Jesus and evidence of what Jesus claimed in chapter 11, that if you come to Him, you will have a more transcendent and more ultimate experience of rest than the rigid law following of the Pharisees requires. Let's take a quick look. Jesus acknowledged in chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, that his people were weary and heavy laden, burdened with a difficult yoke. And we know from the historical context that Jesus is referring to the burdensome requirements that the Pharisees inscribed had heaped on to their followers as they sought to follow God's law perfectly to the letter all the time. And then in chapter 12, we get an actual example of this taking place. The Pharisees are so concerned with the letter of the law regarding following God's commandment to keep the Sabbath. And there is a subsequent confrontation with Jesus. We read the story just a few minutes ago. Let's read verses 1 through 8 again. Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, that is Jesus, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which, is, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The disciples, along with Jesus, are traveling, possibly Pharisees sort of walking along with them. They're on their way to synagogue. Verse 9 tells us, 
And the disciples are hungry. They grab some of the grain on the fringes of the grain fields. And the Pharisees are not okay with this. Why? Because it was Shabbat. It was the Sabbath. It was Saturday. The day of rest when no work was allowed. And the Pharisees and scribes, as you may know, adhered to a very strict code when it came to what exactly constituted as work on the Sabbath. And we're going to look into some of that more when we come back to this passage. But it's even evident for us just at face value. They're not happy with this. Your disciples are breaking God's law, they say. And then Jesus' response to them in verses 3 through 8, I believe, reveals three important things to us about who Jesus is and what he had come for. First, his response reveals that Jesus understood the law better than the Pharisees did. These so-called authorities on the law get called out by Jesus because of their misunderstanding. He points them to the story of David, which they no doubt knew, eating what was not lawful for him to eat, but not being condemned for eating what was not technically lawful to eat. And Jesus implies in his correction of them that they should have understood that there are therefore some things that are of greater concern than the meticulous and rigid rule following in matters such as these. Things that are more important, such as the well-being of a fellow human. He also points them to the fact that technically, the priests who ministered on Shabbat were working, kind of like pastors do on Sundays. But that didn't bring them condemnation. And so therefore, again, apparently there are other things to consider sometimes. And it implies that the command to observe and keep the Sabbath wasn't simply about not working, even though that was certainly the command that needed to be obeyed. But the spirit of the command was what was at its heart. That's the second thing that it reveals, that Jesus' attitude towards the law was more about the Spirit than the letter. And we've got to be careful here because obviously we don't believe that Jesus didn't care about the law and that he didn't follow it. No, of course that's not the case. But the spirit of the law regarding the Sabbath was about putting God first, was about worshiping him, was about resting in him. And, and quite literally, the disciples and Jesus were on their way to synagogue to worship, to uh, rest in the Lord. And to Jesus, grabbing some grain to eat on their way to synagogue was not in violation of the spirit of the call to worship and rest and prioritize God and depend on Him. In fact, as we'll see when we come back to this, it could be argued, and I think I will argue, that what they were doing was actually totally lawful. And that the laws that the Pharisees were upset about in that moment were more rigid than the actual law required, which of course was part of the problem. And that then leads to the third important thing that these words of Jesus teach us, which is that Jesus is the actual authority on the law. And I'm eager to dig into this more deeply in a few weeks, but you see it here in verse 8. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus here uses this favorite name for himself. He uses it many times throughout Matthew's Gospel. The Son of Man. 
And in case you don't know, this title actually refers to Jesus' divine nature. Not just his human nature, even though a title like Son of Man might make you think that he is referring specifically to his human nature. It's talking about his divine nature. We'll get into that more when we come back to this passage. But just note for now that that's what he means when he calls himself the Son of Man. He is identifying himself as being divine. He's calling himself God. He's claiming authority over the Sabbath. Now, these three aspects of Jesus' response that reveal who He is and how He views the law takes us to one of three truths that this whole section in verses 1-21 through teaches us. And all three of them are related to the issue of legalism. First, legalistic judgment condemns the guiltless. That's actually a phrase that Jesus uses in verse 7. If you had known this passage that says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. He's saying to them, if you understood the Scriptures that you know so well, you would not be guilty of judging the guiltless. And Jesus is saying a lot here, but at the heart of it is an indictment of the Pharisees for their judgment of the disciples. What the Pharisees were doing was what we might call legalism. And I am sure that some of us in this room today could say that we have experienced or even demonstrated a kind of legalism at times in our families our churches, in our schools, etc. And there are a lot of helpful ways to try to define and describe legalism, but I think this is what's essential to understanding it. That at the heart of legalism is a misunderstanding and or wrong application of the function and purpose of the law and grace. Legalism, I'm saying, is a misunderstanding and or a wrong application of the function and purpose of the law and grace. And legalism can look like actually believing that obedience to God's law is what's required for salvation and will actually bring salvation. It can also look like giving inordinate attention to minuscule aspects of the law to the exclusion of weightier matters of the law, which Jesus talks about. It can also look like adding rules, as the Pharisees were doing here, because of the fear of breaking any of the rules. Of course, it can also look like a simple attitude of superiority because of your own adherence to a stricter standard. These are just a few ways we can see legalism play it out. Sinclair Ferguson, our virtual teacher of our E412 class, talks about this in his book called The Whole Christ, and he describes legalism this way. Legalism is simply separating the law of God from the person of God. It's any teaching that diminishes or distorts the generous love of God and the full freeness of His grace. It then distorts God's graciousness revealed in His law and fails to see law set within its proper context in redemptive history as an expression of a gracious Father. 
So legalism is a distorted view of the grace of God in relation to the law of God. And it can appear in several different ways, but at its heart is the same problem. A distorted view of, the, of rule following and therefore a lack of grace. And that's one of the truths that we've got to take away from this passage when we're finished with it in, in several weeks. That Jesus has a problem with legalism because, in part, it condemns the innocent. And as I said, some of you perhaps have experienced or even expressed this in your lives. We've had seasons in this very church where there's been suffering from the effects of legalism and judgment aimed at people who shouldn't be being judged. The disciples, it turns out, as the Lord of the Sabbath himself allowed, they were able to eat that grain. It turns out later that it was good for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath because the whole point of the Sabbath is that it's for our good. In fact, there's a parallel passage to this event in Mark's Gospel that describes this same interaction with the Pharisees. And Mark includes something in it. And it says this, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Did you know that that's ultimately the purpose behind God's law? Friends, the Ten Commandments is not a list of arbitrary rules that this manipulative, mean-spirited grandpa in the sky just decided to come up with one day for fun. No, it's the good and wise design of the omniscient creator who knows exactly what we need in order to flourish and enjoy a relationship with him. Killing, stealing, lying, overworking, committing sexual sin, worshiping false gods, diminishing God's transcendence, disregarding God's design for families, discontentment with what God has given, all of these things bring destruction. It's what they do. It's what they've always done. And that's why God gives commands not to do those things. And so ultimately, God's law about the Sabbath was about caring for people, not burdening them. But the Pharisees, blinded in their legalism, totally overcome by their self-righteous, prideful, self-important snobbery, totally missed the point. And in so doing, they judged these men who didn't deserve judgment. And thus... Jesus has a problem with them, and he indicts them. We'll look at that some more soon. The next section comes in verses 9 through 14, where it says, He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Jesus said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So what's going on here? Well, it's another question regarding the law. 
This time, it's not the Pharisees criticizing something that Jesus' disciples were doing. This time, they actually create a hypothetical scenario to try to trap Jesus into saying something that might wind up, in their minds at least, incriminating him regarding his view of the law. Evidently, they didn't like it when in the passage previous, he said to them, twice have you not read, and then once if you had known. And now they think they can ask him a question that will lead to their being able, verse 10 says, to accuse him. And this man in their company with a withered hand presents an opportunity for the Pharisees to try to set a trap for Jesus. And so they question him. I've been in conversations where I realize someone is doing something like this. Have you? You suddenly realize they are crafting their questions towards you in such a way that you'll be open to some kind of accusation. And maybe eventually you hear them say something like, so what you're saying is, and then you realize they've trapped you. That's something like what the Pharisees wanted to do here. They believe they're trapping Jesus because they are certain that the answer to their question ought to be no. But they can't trap Jesus. One of my favorite comedians who's named Brian Regan has a bit where he expresses that he finds it humorous when someone responds to a question by saying, let me answer that by asking you this. And I found that to be a humorous thing every time I've noticed it since. And I find it humorous every time Jesus does it. He essentially does that here. In verse 10, the Pharisees say, is it lawful? And Jesus responds in verse 11 with a question. Which one of you? He doesn't walk into their trap. He actually sets one of his own for them. And of course, his point in this hypothetical situation of his own creation is that, of course, if they had an animal that needed rescuing on the Sabbath, they would be allowed to rescue it. And so then it naturally follows Jesus' arguing that it makes even more sense for people who are more important than animals to be cared for on the Sabbath. And then to the Pharisees' great chagrin, he directs the man in their presence with this disability to stretch out its hand, his hand and his disability is healed. Jesus defies the Pharisees' legalistic, self-righteous, oppressive view of the law and heals the man. And that's where the second truth we need to understand from this passage comes in, which is that loving people is more ultimate than rule following. And I know this can get really uncomfortable for those of us who are rule followers. But that's the point here. Listen, of course the Sabbath was to be obeyed. It's not that rule following, law keeping, didn't matter or doesn't matter. In fact, if you followed Jesus around every day of his life, what you would see was perfect law keeping his whole life. Jesus would have been the best at obeying the command to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But Jesus wants us to see here that caring for someone does not disregard the Sabbath. He was teaching that there were things more ultimate than the most careful rule following possible at certain points and times. And in fact, I think Jesus wants us to see here that sometimes fear 
of rule breaking can lead us to not care for people who need to be cared for. And that's illustrated beautifully in another passage that's coming much later for us in Matthew 23 where Jesus pronounces woes to the scribes and Pharisees, the hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Caring about people, loving people, is weightier, we could say, than simplistic, mechanical, maniacal rule following. And again, this does not mean that the rules don't matter. This does not, hopefully, does not lead to a libertine attitude towards righteousness. You must obey the commands of God. You must not sin against Him. But in the Pharisees, ultimately, simpleton, ignorant minds, they couldn't conceive of a need for there ever to be a scenario in which flexibility was necessary. Their whole gig was rigidity, strictness, and performance. So no wonder verse 14 tells us that they went out and conspired against Him how to destroy Him. Jesus has a big problem with legalism in part because it diminishes the weightier importance of love. Loving one another with grace and mercy and forgiveness and gentleness is more ultimate than just making sure that everything is perfect all the time than making sure that everyone in your life is held accountable for every single one of their sins. Jesus Himself was the ultimate display of love for people. His whole mission was about love. It was driven by love. God's plan to redeem sinners like you and me was driven by love. The Bible tells us that He so loved the world that He sent Jesus to become a man to accomplish perfect righteousness by following the law perfectly and to be crucified unjustly so that undeserving people like you and me could be saved. You and me, people who Jesus somehow loved. And then, therefore, that we might enjoy a relationship with the greatest person of all time, our God. And that's the kind of selfless, sacrificial love that's at the heart of the righteousness of God. Now, as we begin to round out our sort of bird's eye view of this passage in anticipation of coming back and looking more closely and digging a little more deeply, getting into some of the important clarifications and nuances that are needed here in a few weeks, here's the final portion of this bird's eye view of the text, verses 15 through 21. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope." 
Jesus withdraws himself from this place where his ministry was in danger, but he doesn't stop ministering, as we've seen him do many times before, and he continues to do later. He's busy healing many. And he doesn't want the people that he's healing to spread the word. You ever find that curious? This is not a aw shucks kind of an attitude that you might see on the Andy Griffith show. And if you don't know what the Andy Griffith show is, ask your parents. When Sheriff Andy Taylor would do something generous or helpful to one of the townspeople and they'd come and thank him profusely, he might say something in an enduring southern drawl along the lines of, oh, it was nothing, don't you pay no mind to that or something. It's not like that, what Jesus is doing here. There's certainly humility there. We know that, of course, is the case. But he also knew that his glorification was coming, that his time had not arrived yet. He knew that the time for him to be to have way more attention, to then be killed for it, and then to be resurrected and seated at the right hand of the Father was coming. He knew that all nations would bow to him. He was waiting for the right time, waiting on his Father's time. And so he tells the people not to spread the word. He withdraws himself from danger, gets back to the healing of many, and then Matthew gives us another one of his Old Testament prophecy fulfillment references. And as I said earlier, it's a reference to Isaiah 42, 1-4. through 4. And Just notice the essence of what Matthew is pointing to here. He's once again connecting the dots for his readers regarding Jesus being the fulfillment of Old Testament promises that God would come and save His people through His chosen servant. And so that's the third truth that we have to see here. It's that Jesus Christ is the Lord. That is, I'm convinced, the whole point of this entire passage. The point of all the verses leading up to chapter 12 and then the point of chapter 12 in this section here and indeed, the whole point of Matthew's Gospel. It's not just in verses 1-8 through that the disciples had proper legal precedent for eating the grain. It's not just that, as we'll see, Jesus had the right to heal this man on the Sabbath. If precedent is what you're looking for when you're interpreting a passage like this, then like the Pharisees, you're missing the point. Because the point isn't all about legal precedent. The point is that Jesus is the Lord. That Jesus had come to fulfill the law. That He was Himself God incarnate. The divine Creator of all things. The originator of the law. The reason behind the law. The law personified and fulfilled. The Lord of the law. Verse 18, the very beginning, says that Jesus is the chosen and beloved servant of God. He's the one. He's the Messiah. The end of verse 18 says he's empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak and to execute justice. Verse 19 tells us that he's not interested in drawing attention to himself before the proper time. Verse 20 says that even as he's bringing about the justice of God, he's going to be gracious and gentle with needy and broken and humble people. And then in verse 21, he says that he is the hope of everyone, including the Gentiles, not just the Jews. That's the Lord. That's Jesus. That's our Christ. Gracious, just, the ruler, the Savior, powerful and 
gentle. And so Jesus has a big problem with legalism, finally, in part, because it replaces self with the true Lord of the law. Legalism says, I know what's best. I know how this person should have to pay for what they've done. I'm the one who is qualified to determine what is true and right. And it assumes the position of the Lord of the law. Remember, I've said this before, and I'm hoping to say it many times as we go through this passage. Obedience is not legalism. Obedience is right. Legalism is a distortion of the proper understanding of the law and grace. And so legalism ignores certain scriptural commands towards a disposition of grace and forgiveness and love and gentleness because legalism and legalists believe that they know best whether or not grace is called for in a certain situation. And fears being gracious because of what it might say about a relaxed attitude towards righteousness. Sadly, more often than not, legalism does not choose grace. It chooses condemnation because it's blinded by pride, by ignorance, and by self-righteousness. And as I said earlier, you've perhaps experienced this. You've perhaps suffered from being legalistic yourself. Our church, as I said, has at times experienced the pain and suffering and damage that can come from legalism of this kind can lead to members being afraid to be honest about their struggles for fear of being condemned and looked down upon. It can lead to leaders becoming self-righteous and ungracious because of being blinded by their own legalism and putting themselves in the place that only the Lord belongs. You see, the Pharisees' obsession with rule-following and law-keeping became distorted And it blinded them to the appearance of the Lord of the law when he came. Their hearts evidently were not in sync with the true purpose of the law. Their hearts were more fixed on appearing to be law keepers, to accomplishing certain status, and even in their case, earning the favor of God. Keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak, of a certain kind keeping up a status of what they considered good, even if it left in their wake broken, discouraged, damaged, and oppressed people. And that is not at all what Jesus is like. What Jesus is like is gracious, even as he is just. He's gentle, even as he is powerful. And so as we make our final approach, as it were, after this bird's eye, overview of this passage, let's seek to see from this viewpoint that one of the main things we have to understand in this section is that our Lord is opposed to legalism. It condemns the innocent. It diminishes love. It puts itself in the place of lordship. After Resurrection Sunday in just a few weeks, pretty crazy, huh? We come back to these passages and begin to look more closely. Let's be committed together to looking to our Lord, depending on His grace to keep us from distorting our view of grace and the law, and to then 
pursue being people who mirror the grace of our Lord, even as we seek to follow His example of obedience. May Redeemer Bible Church be, as a result of passages like this one, a place where grace and truth flourishes, where the norm is gentleness and love and mercy, and where our gracious Lord is honored. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please do this in our hearts and lives. Lord, may this serve as a sort of a taste of what is to come in mining the depths of these verses. I feel so inadequate to have given a kind of a bird's eye view on things that need to be discussed more closely, more deeply. I pray that we will be eager to jump back into these passages soon and that you would use these passages to help us have a clearer understanding of the relationship of the law and grace of our absolute need for obedience and to be gracious to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let's take a few minutes to continue in prayer quietly in our hearts.